Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, according to a new poll by Mara Public Opinion, the NDP and conservative parties are better positioned to respond to Canada's top election concerns. What could this mean for the Liberals' dream of a majority government? Well, we'll talk about it. And with the concerns of the Delta variant continuing to grow, many companies are considering stricter COVID-19 vaccine policies. Dr. Brad Waters, Senior Scientist and Executive VP at the University Health Network, will join us to talk about that. Canadian Armed Forces back on the ground in Afghanistan, but Taliban checkpoints and blockades are limiting hope for some Afghan refugees as they try to seek refuge. And the U.S. land border with Canada has been closed for non-essential travel since March of 2020, and it's going to stay that way, for now anyway. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting first week in the uh, federal election campaign. Of course, that was launched uh, last Sunday when the Governor General dissolved the House at the Prime Minister's request, and bingo, we're off to the polls on, uh, well, September 20th. There'll be advanced polls and everything. We'll get to that a little bit later on. Uh, but who said what is, is really, I guess, the story of the first few days. Uh, interesting, yesterday, day after Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole tried to differentiate himself from his predecessor, uh, who was dogged by questions about abortion during that last federal campaign. You remember those days. Uh, O'Toole found himself in the same spot. O'Toole was asked yesterday to clarify a policy in his party's election platform aimed at protecting the conscience rights of doctors and nurses. I'm pro-choice and we will make sure that women have the ability to make decisions with respect to their health care themselves and make sure that abortion services are available from one coast, from one ocean to the other. And of course, uh, as it is with all elections, of course, as soon as the other party leaders smell blood, they jump on that. So that was one of the topics yesterday. But what are we interested in? What do Canadians want to see our leaders talk about? What are the issues that really matter to us? Uh, to get into that, so pleased to welcome back to the program, John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. John, always a pleasure. I'm glad you could join us again today. No, it's great to be with you, Bill. You guys have done some extensive polling on this, and I was really interested in the results about where we are. You know, forget about what the politicians are saying this week. What are we looking for, and what do we want, and what do we think are the priorities here? Well, we took um, about 20 different items. We asked people to choose two that they would say were the most important, shaping their ballot choice. Um, and what we found was something quite different than what the prime minister is actually talking about. The cost of living and affordability was the number one issue. Um, the environment was next. Um, followed then by to curtail federal government spending so the deficit doesn't grow. Jobs in the economy was next, and then strengthen the healthcare system by giving more targeted money to the provinces. So those were the top um, pieces. Really, I would say that of the four major issues that Canadians are looking at, it has to do with money, pocketbooks, and you know the affordability of living. Yesterday, we had a report out in this country that said that inflation was at four percent rise. Well, that's a lot of money. That means that yeah. coming this year, it's going to cost you 600 bucks more for groceries. And anybody in Hamilton who's going in to buy a roast, they know what it's like, even if you go to Costco. So um, that's what's on our minds. But I don't think after the first week, I mean, it's a bit of a phony war. Um, a lot of people are not paying attention to this. The, the, the parties are trying out their, their campaign slogans and their, their posturing. They're also getting ahead of where they could be criticized by dropping, um, you know, their major platform planks for the NDP and for the Conservatives. So I don't think we're going to see much in the way of <clears throat> the public paying attention for another couple of weeks, but it, it's been a very interesting first week to see where everybody's at. All right, let's use the horse racing analogy, because that in invariably comes into every election. Uh, who are the winners and losers in this first week? Who's nosing ahead right now? Who do you see that gains some ground? Well, the actual polling itself is interesting uh, to yeah. look at. Now, I'm not doing the horse race that I'm releasing. I'm kind of doing it <laughs> behind the scenes. Well, I don't want to, you know, there's lots of other people who are doing this, and I yeah. worked for a couple of them anyways. But, you know, if we went back to uh, the end of July, the, the Liberals across the country were sitting at 10-point lead. By about the 15th of August, they were sitting at a 5-point lead. In the last three polls that have come out that were taken from about the 16th to the 19th now show them at about a three-point lead. So it's clear that they've been slipping in major parts of the country. <clears throat> the beneficiary of that is is probably um, the NDP in certain places, the Conservatives and others. But it's still early days. What it does mean, though, is that the Liberals are not flirting with the majority. They're you know still at the minority stage, so they're going to have to kick it up a bit. But I would say from a plank platform uh, positioning and plugging into what the issues are of importance to Canadians 
in shaping their ballot. And this is what they say. Mm -hmm. It's about affordability. You look at Jagmeet Singh, who from the first moment the writ was dropped, banging the drum on affordability, dealing with, um, you know, wages and housing and uh, the cost of living. So he's been on that every single day, even when he was talking about manufacturing, tying it back to jobs and the economy. If you look over in Aaron O'Toole, he put out his five-point plan on the economy very early on. Um, he's been talking about the affordability. Even yesterday when he stood up and talked about um, the ability to gain a house in this country. And, you know, he, he said, you know, we're going to create a million uh, homes for people and we're going to repurpose some federal land. It was about the affordability of that issue. The prime minister only started talking about affordability yesterday. Now, and that's in the midst of a series of other questions about Afghanistan and healthcare and a bunch of other stuff. His, his plate looks fairly cluttered with a lot of meat, potatoes and peas and corn on it, where the other guys have just got the meat and potatoes. So I, I would say right now, after the first week, if you were looking at platforms alone, the NDP and the Conservatives are ahead of where the Liberals are in what Canadians want to hear. I want to ask you about that because we saw two official launches. Actually, the NDP launched their platform even before uh, the Prime Minister went to see the, the Governor General. Correct. So we, we knew where Jagmeet Singh and the NDP were going to be, and, and no real surprises there. Those are the bread and butter issues for them, too. Aaron O'Toole released his uh, on Monday, the day after the writ was dropped. Uh, i got to ask you, John, you've been covering these elections for a long, long time right now. Uh, I know it's early days. It's only the first week. Why haven't the Liberals released an official platform? I mean, I, I, that's, I find that mind-boggling. You know, these are the guys that controlled the scenario. I mean, they're the ones that, that decided to dissolve the House. They're the ones that knew exactly what they were going to do and when they were going to do it, yet they don't seem to be ready. Well, and I think you're right. Um, the budget itself was, in my mind, the uh, platform that, that the Liberals had, and they actually you know, went across the country before the yep. election was called and had doled out all the money. I think it was striking yesterday in the absence of a platform that the prime minister, in addition to everything else that he has done, stood up and promised another $9 billion to the provinces to look after long-term care. Now, he didn't say, uh, look, we're just going to do national standards because the provincial governments are the ones that handle health care and how they yeah. deal with it. I mean, he was right in the weeds in this stuff. You know, bringing up the wages to $25 an hour, uh, trying to train and get, you know, 50,000 more um, healthcare workers into the field. Like, I mean, it was very in the weeds. I didn't hear that coming out of the budget. So I find it really strange that they've already gone. They've got a budget which gave them all the planks that they needed. Uh, child care was right at the front of it. We don't hear a lot about that. In fact, it's not tied to the affordability issue as much as it could be. And now they're they're seeming to bring forward a series of other things that I think were a little bit unnecessary. But nonetheless, you're right. They haven't put forward a campaign platform per se when they already had one before and i find that a bit strange well it, it reminded me eerily of the 2005 election when paul martin was seeking re-election and that was a campaign that seemed to go on forever i mean over christmas time and everything else was dreadful uh, but they didn't release the liberals didn't release their campaign platform until two weeks before the the election day uh too little too late and it was that kind of done in a haphazard manner it looked like somebody wrote it in the back of an envelope uh people like to see something even in hard copy or to, to a website don't John to say, how can I find out more about this? Oh, go to this webpage. It's all there for you. Uh, they're not there yet. Uh, the, the NDP certainly are, and, and the Conservatives are. And, and whether you agree or disagree with some of the policies they're proposing, it's there for you to see and make your own evaluation. Uh, I, I think they've missed something. It's, it's not too late now, but uh, to come in third when you guys are the ones that are seeking re-election, I think it's a little odd. Well, it may be that there's a group of people that want to go and find out all of these things, and you and I know that you know, if you're in southwestern Ontario right now, you really have, you know, the heat of the summer and everything else that you're thinking about in an election campaign. Um, and we also have seen Doug Ford in the last provincial election who didn't announce, a, you know, uh, a platform until 48 hours, basically, until the end of the campaign. Yeah. And then it wasn't even costed. So I'm not sure that at this stage it matters that much. What it allows the parties to do, though, is stick to a series of talking points. Yeah. Canadians... Canadians know what they want. The political parties, it's their job to shape what they're going to vote about. And I think it was telling from the first moment the prime minister came out of government house and announced a campaign, two things happened. Number one, the first thing was that he had to deal with Afghanistan, which was an external force that interrupted his flow of what he wanted to talk about that morning. But even if you take Afghanistan out of the, the way, 
which portends that he's going to be dealing with these things throughout the course of the campaign and all the more reason to have those talking points. The second thing was that he simply said, "Our we want a consultation with the people so that they can um, give us the mandate to do more of what we have been doing. And we want to, and this is what he actually said, we want the other candidates who are leading um, their parties to comment on this, but we want a mandate to do more of what we were doing. And that's, that doesn't cut through the heat of the summer. That doesn't cut through for talking points on what people want to do. I mean, it, it, it means that the discipline of the messaging and the discipline of what people say to you and what you're going to say at them at the door is pretty diffuse. So again, I'm, I'm a bit surprised like you that they're, they're doing things on the fly for a campaign that you thought was in the bag already, that they, that they were prepared. They had the planks, they had the talking points and everything. And I would say the first week it's been diffuse and it's been a bit in disarray where they've been answering questions that have been coming at them as opposed to telling people exactly what they think is the most important thing. Uh, yeah, anytime you're playing defense in a campaign, it's going to be problematic. And, and I'm, you know, the prime minister may think he knows what he's doing, and this may be his strategy, but you just mentioned something that I think is, is very important here. The people that are knocking at the doors. The prime minister and Aaron O'Toole and Jacques Singh are not knocking on doors, uh, but the local candidates are. And you know, if, if you don't have a fact sheet, if you don't have those talking points uh, when you're knocking on doors and they say, what about this? Uh, this is how local candidates get, get themselves in trouble because they don't know exactly what they're saying i know they've all been you know briefed on this sort of stuff too but you don't have that bible and you know the antithesis i guess is this is remember when jean chrétien had his little red book uh which at the time was a little weird but i mean uh, you know the mousy tongue analogies were flying when they did that but it was the bible for these candidates to say this is what we're all about i, I think the local candidates really need that kind of assistance Let's let's look at two things. <clears throat> First of all, when I've talked to candidates, and I've talked to a few of them in different writings, um, I say, what do you hear at the door? And they say, well, what we hear are very individual issues. So for some people, it's about daycare. For other people, it's about COVID. For other people, it's about the economy. For other people, it's about CERB. I mean, there's no collective kind of <clears throat> issue like there was in the last provincial campaign where it was, we want Kathleen Wynne's government gone. Mm -hmm. Or we want to elect we want to elect somebody because it's time for a change or things like that. Like there's no kind of collective piece. Everybody's holding on to their own piece right now. And it's very similar to what we're seeing when we ask Canadians, what do you want to have to shape your ballot box? So that's got to be a warning to somebody that isn't shaping it already and leaving it open to the field to define what's going to shape their own ballot, right? Because if everybody is ending up shaping it in one direction, you're not going to get them coalesced in another. It also leaves it up to the opposition to do that when you're giving up, you know, the opportunity. But the second thing is I've been doing this for now, God knows, 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, almost, or, you know, almost too long. But if I go back to the <laughs> 1990 campaign, uh, Bill, and you and I are old enough that we remember that, there was a certain yep. mood in Ontario where David Peterson had a poll out in July that said that he had 50% of the popular support in the province and that he was just going to waltz through for an election campaign that was going to be, a, you know, in September. And a couple of things happened in the course of that campaign, but there was no single other poll that came out until our company released one 10 days before the campaign that showed that Bob Ray and the NDP were going to win. And, and the only reason I say that was there was a mood. There was a mood below the surface of the campaign that, that sort of spoke to don't take advantage of us. Don't play us for suckers, you know? Um, and when, when Peterson changed um, the two seats that he was having for the Senate uh, and gave them away without consultation and a couple of other things, the public decided to send a message, not a mandate to the NDP because we did polls on that afterwards, but it was a message, but it inadvertently gave the NDP a majority after 17 to 18 months of being embedded in this country because of a pandemic, I can tell you, and I'm sure you can too. There's a mood out there. There is a low level road rage that you know, I don't think has surfaced yet, but I do say this, that if four politicians or five walk into a bar and they're all standing at the bar and they've all got drinks in their hands and they're all ready to take a shot, they down that drink. And then what do they do? They turn and they look around the room. And I just think that that's going to come after the debates where they turn and look around the room and a bunch of people in the public are just going to catch their eye. And you know, those, that look, that look is either go ahead, fill your boots, have another drink, or it's going to be Let's step outside because 
you've crossed me. And I think there's going to be something like that that has the potential of happening during the last 10 days of this campaign. And I don't rule out that it could be a mood similar to what happened. I'm not saying where that flow is going to go, but there's something there. And I wouldn't want to risk it without being very definitive as to what I am going to deliver on Election Day for the populace. I could ask Ian Rankin in Nova Scotia about that, can't you? A yeah, very they, similar situation. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And and you know what? That was a case where the conservatives actually built up the progressive in conservatives yes. and said, we're going to invest in health care. There you go. It was an incredible lesson for the federal liberals. And it said the most progressive um, liberal government at the time in the country was in Nova Scotia, but they were also the most um the best at dealing with COVID, the best that locked it down, the best that kept their citizens safe. And you know what? In the end, it didn't matter worth a wit. So when we ask what the most important issue is in this country right now, and affordability shows up number one for 23% of the population, guess where COVID shows up? 9%. Guess where uh, daycare shows up? 2%. It's got to be linked to those top issues or they're just planks, you know, out to sea on a, on a, on a raft. There was a, a poll that I saw a couple of days ago, and it, had, it was done here in southern Ontario, and I can't even remember the agency. Anyway, they said the number one issue of the people, I said, what are you really ticked off about? That was the essence of what they were asking. And mm-hmm. it, they said the lockdowns, the shutdowns, uh, the, the store closures. And, and I, they said, well, that's not a federal issue. That's all done by you know local councils or provincial governments. Said, I don't care. We're angry. And, I, and I, I, that captures the mode. Forget about what the question was. They're angry. And when people are ticked off and angry and frustrated, uh, nine times out of ten, I can tell you from even that short 12 years or so I was in politics, uh, if you're the one knocking at the door, you're going to get an earful, whether it's a federal issue, a municipal issue, or whatever it is. When people are angry, they want to take it out on somebody. There was an event that happened in 1990, which characterized a lot of themes around that time. And it was an allegation because it turned out to be untrue at the, at the end of the day. But it was called wilding. It was um, the report that a young woman had been beaten in a New York park and there was no apparent reason for it happening. Now, that was the story at the time. Then there were five people that went to jail for that. They were exonerated later. But the word stuck. And if you go back to your urban dictionary, you will find it. Wilding, the indiscriminate beating up of people. And that was the mood that was given to the populace in Ontario at that time. And I think what you're describing is similar to that. Mm-hmm. You, If you're going to knock on somebody's door, you better have a damn good reason for being at the door. If you're going to call an election, you better have a damn good reason for calling it. And while people are not tuned into it right now, I think the Liberal Party, which has been more diffuse and maybe riding on its laurels a little bit, are going to have to tune into that in the next short while because the public you run the risk of them discriminately beating you up forget about the indiscriminate um there's there's a you don't have to win by much in this country um to get a majority in fact you have to have about 36 percent 38 percent to do that so in order to get a majority you only have to have a fraction and right now if you look at the current public opinion polls that lead that they had is melting away so I think, Bill, you and I should, you know, maybe check in at the end of next week to see if the Liberals have countered that going into this this coming week, either with a much more focused um, uh, campaign plank uh, uh, approach to, you know, getting people focused or whether they've sharpened the knives and they're going after the opposition because going after Aaron O'Toole so far, you know, with the traditional liberal attacks has not done anything like it, no. it, it's, it, it's glancing off. So. Let's uh, let's give let's say that the phony war happened this week, but the mood is still there, and let's see if they adjust to this coming week. Well, uh, you guys always have your fingers on the pulse, Mayor of Public Opinion. John, as always, thanks so much for this. We will check in in just a few days and see what's happening, but appreciate your time today. Thanks, Bill, and to everybody there. Have a great weekend. You too. John Wright, Executive VP, of course, of Mayor of Public Opinion. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked about, uh, I, I'm not going to beat this analogy to death, but the carrot or the stick. I mean, we need to increase vaccination rates. There's no two ways about that. And different people, different organizations, different municipalities are trying different methods uh, and coaxing, uh, using the carrot, in other words, and offering incentives, I guess initially worked in some situations, but it doesn't seem to be catching up to the numbers that we really need to get to. So more stringent measures need to be taken right now. And with the Delta 
Delta variant picking up steam, workplaces across Ontario are now looking at bringing in stricter COVID-19 relations, including Toronto's University Health Network. Global's Tina Trujani has some details. The province mandated vaccination policies earlier this week meant to encourage workers in high-risk sectors, including healthcare, to get vaccinated. But those who don't and can't provide a medical reason why they haven't had their shots can still go to work. They'll have to undergo regular testing and attend education sessions. The University Health Network is working to have a fully vaccinated staff and saying that policy doesn't go far enough. A spokesperson says about 94% have already rolled up their sleeves for both shots, and it is considering unpaid leave sort of as a last resort once all other options have been exhausted. Based on risk assessment, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, indicated that he would give hospitals the latitude to be able to make vaccines mandatory if necessary. A spokesperson tells Global News since there is that flexibility to do more, the measure is being looked at as a way to ensure the safety of both staff and patients. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, one of those places that is looking at that, of course, is the University Health Network. Uh, to bring us up to speed on what's going on there, uh, pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Brad Waters, who's a senior scientist and executive vice president of science and research at the University Health Network. Doctor, a uh, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks for being here. I got to, I got I, I to tell you, because I'm getting a lot of feedback, and it, it, frankly, it probably reflects my attitude on this too. Uh, when the vaccine rollout started in Canada in earnest, I guess it was just after Christmas in January, uh, I thought, boy, the healthcare workers are going to be the first ones in line because they're obvious because of the primary situation that, in which they had. I can, I, I thought nobody's going to refuse this. I mean, they've seen the devastation of COVID. They've seen what this can do. Uh, they certainly roll up their sleeves. I, but you've still got, I think it's about eight percent of your of your workforce that are not vaccinated. What what are you hearing from from some of those folks? Well, I think you hear the same thing you you hear from uh, you know other other groups that are still uh, in that category in the unvaccinated category. There's a variety of reasons, um, and you know some are vaccine hesitant. There may be others that you know feel as though they may have some sort of medical condition that, that creates some risk. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there, and and everyone is um, you know potentially can be, be influenced by that. We're we're pretty. Um, pleased that you know 94 percent of of those who reported to us uh, have got the vaccination um, but that leaves five or six or seven percent that haven't and um, you know because of that we do feel like it's necessary to go further um, and our expectation is going to be that everyone who works at UHN is vaccinated. And we're talking about an extensive network, just for the sake of our listeners who understand. I mean, that 8% may sound like an, an insignificant number, but it's over 900 employees. I mean, because there's a lot of folks that work for the for the network, uh, and, and the 92% is admirable. I, I wish we had that society-wide here. We'd all be in much better shape, I guess, if we did. Uh, I know that when you started this, uh, and we had Dr. Moore on the program a couple of days ago, and he talked about this being the baseline, but it was going to be up to individual uh, companies and networks uh, to do something different. But you actually had pretty good success initially with this, didn't you? When uh, you introduced, I guess you call it the jab or swab program. That's right. Um, we started about six weeks ago. Uh, we put in our own vaccination policy. That's actually pretty similar to what the province announced as the expectation. Uh, six weeks ago, we said yeah, either you, you need to report that you're vaccinated or you need to participate in a regular at-home testing program and um, have proof of a negative test before you come. And I think that helped get our vaccination rates up. Um, those, you know, the, the group, those 900 that are unvaccinated are at home testing. Um, and that provides, uh, you know, some level of protection. But, you know, as I said, with what's coming in the fall, uh, there's clearly a, a new wave of Delta coming. And in order to protect our patients and protect our staff, and because we believe in the science behind these vaccines, um, we're moving now to a full mandatory requirement for vaccination. And I know uh, when that program came out, I'm just going by some of the remarks there from the studies that have been indicated. Uh, it was a great success, but there were some people that even resisted the testing, said, I'm not going to get vaccinated, and I don't think I should be tested either. Uh, and, and to your credit, what the policy that you developed, I thought, was, was a, a, a very good idea. You basically said, look, take some time off, go home, and, and think about this. In other words, a cooling off period. Let's not make rash decisions when, when people are upset about this. And uh, looking at the numbers, that seemed to pay off. I guess a few folks took that time and thought, well, maybe I need to reconsider this. Yeah, that's right. You know, our, our employees are, are the most important asset we have. And, you know, we want to work with all of them and, and look at what opportunities we have to, 
you know, to discuss, you know, the importance of the vaccines. We put an education program in place and we really want everyone to go out there and protect themselves. And, uh, you know, we, the, this is a new policy. There, there will be disciplinary action if, if you're not compliant with the policy. Um, but that's done in a, you know, as compassionate a way as possible. The sort of two week leave to kind of go and reconsider this. Um, it's an opportunity to do that. And, um, you know, our expectation will be, though, um, that if you do take that unpaid leave and, and decide you're not going to be vaccinated, that there would be further consequences. In your own environment, then, within the the network, Doctor, how do you deal with the, the misinformation? Uh, I hear about it all the time. Every time I have a conversation like I'm having with you right now, uh, I'll be inundated with emails and tweets from people saying, ah, oh, no, no, it'll cause this, it'll do this, and all these sorts of things. Uh, there's a lot of stuff you can find on the, on the web right now that'll, that'll substantiate, I guess, about any point of view that you want. But right, you, you guys are at ground zero right now, and so are your staff. You're working on this. How, how do you present this to them to say, well, this is this is what you should consider? Well, we do that. You know, we're an academic medical center and uh, we, we practice evidence-based medicine. We talk about that all the time. We look at the data as objectively as we can. Uh, we have lots of experts that actually can interpret that data well. Um, and, you know, the best approach to this is to, um, is to present the science in an unbiased and uh, uh, in a way that we can interpret that, you know, to the uh, uh, to counter, you know, much of the misinformation that's out there. You're right, you know, people are getting all kinds of information and, you know, they hear different things from the people they live with and the people they work with. And, um, you know, you can understand where that uh, confusion comes from sometime. But, uh, you know, we're, uh, we feel it's important for us as Canada's largest academic medical center to, you know, to um, demonstrate our belief behind the science and the research that we've seen with this, these vaccines. They're incredibly effective. They're incredibly safe. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you don't need a vaccine to come to UHN and you need one to go to the ball game, you know, what, what, what's that really saying? So, you know, that's part of our decision, too, is, is to demonstrate our own um, understanding and belief in the science around uh, how important the vaccines are as part of our our way to get through uh, the next wave of COVID and, and eventually out of it completely. Doctor, let's talk a little bit about this. And I, I know that your your organization does an awful lot of research into this and as to what's happening and what could be happening. I know you've done some projections on this. Uh, and, and some people, I'm sure you've heard the same sort of a mindset, thought that, okay, we got the vaccinations right now. We got the rate up there. It's not doing too badly. We got into some of the warmer weather back in May and June. Uh, the numbers are going down. The worst is over. Uh, and then along comes the Delta variant. Uh, how worried should we be about this variant and the impact it's going to have? Well, the variant is, you know, is far more transmissible than the version we had a year ago. And, you know, you see cases today are higher than they were at the same time last year, heading into the school year, uh, despite the fact that we've got 75% of our population fully vaccinated. And that's all due to the increased transmissibility of that variant. And, you know, what I, my message to the people I see that are unvaccinated is, is that it's very unlikely to escape exposure to this virus at this point. And, you know, either you're going to get the vaccine or you're going to, you're going to get infected with COVID. And, you know, no one uh, should uh, underestimate the potential risk of that, both for themselves, but also the risk that you then pose to others. And, you know, the, the requirement for vaccination at UHN for our staff is, is about protecting them, but it's about protecting our patients too. Many of those patients, you know, are immunocompromised, cancer patients, transplant patients, and so on, um, who can't get protected by the vaccine. And so we, we really think it's, you know, our responsibility to do everything we can uh, to create a safe environment for the patients that we're treating. And it's a game of statistics. I mean, really, when you look at numbers, I suppose. I mean, the the, the projections I've seen, actually, the numbers are, uh, of people that have been hospitalized with this uh, since January when the vaccine program started. I think it's over uh, 85 to 90 percent of the, the people that have been admitted to hospital that have been tested positive uh, were not, not vaccinated. So, so, I mean, you you decrease those odds with those vaccinations. I guess there's nothing, there are no guarantees. Nothing is 100 percent, is it? No, it's not 100%, but it's extremely good. And, you know, the vast majority of the patients coming into the hospital and the ones that are going on to the ICU and needing ventilators are unvaccinated. Um, you know, the, the risk that the unvaccinated pose to the vaccinated is also real. 
um, you know, really elderly populations, immunocompromised populations, you know, the small percent that remain at risk um, are at risk when there's high levels in the community. And, and that's why it's also so important for, you know, younger people, healthier people who, who may not sort of feel the same kind of risk. Um, you know, that group getting vaccinated does protect that very small group of others um, who can't really be properly protected, even with the vaccine. And that's one of the sub-stories of, of this whole thing, isn't it? Especially with the Delta variant. Uh, a lot of the new cases are that younger demographic. I mean, this was characterized, I think wrongly so, but characterized initially uh, a year and a half or so ago as something that old, frail, and elderly people are going to get. Uh, the rest of us are going to be in pretty good shape. We found that not to be the case. Uh, but now that under-40 groups seem to be the ones that seem to be affected most. Yeah, and, and the reason they're, un- they're affected most is because they're the group with the highest level of uh, unvaccinated. And, and that's the group at risk. Um, you know, we've got amazing vaccines. Uh, that group can go out and get vaccinated. And we really need to do everything we can to reach out to, to all of those who are still waiting or still hesitant um, and help them get that vaccine. And I hope that that's what, you know, that, that's one of the messages that will come from, you know, the change in policy that we made and, uh, and, the, and the ripple effect that you're seeing from the government uh, policy, you know, the province is doing this now, the federal government has mandated vaccines, um, many businesses are doing this, and I think, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of groups stepping up to demonstrate their uh, support of this and to, and to help all society um, get vaccinated and, and uh, mitigate the consequences of what will come this fall. One other thing I want to do just to get you to address something is, as I say, I get a lot of feedback from folks on this. Uh, from that demographic, in fact, because we have talked about the impact it is having on that age demographic, uh, from one individual that said, look, I'm in really great shape. I bicycle every day for about 10 clay. I eat properly. I'm in really good physical condition. Even if I get it, I'm going to be okay. Uh, as we said a few minutes ago, there are no guarantees. I, the ICUs were filled with people that looked just like that, and sadly, some of them went on ventilators, and some of them didn't come out of the hospital. Absolutely right. You know, it is no guarantee. And why take that risk? You know, um, there's also the risk of long COVID. There are lots of individuals who get infected and recover, um, uh, but end up having long lasting symptoms that last for months. And we're still, there's lots of research that needs to be done to understand this. We don't even really understand how big that risk is going to be yet. Um, But it's, you know, it's a risk that's just not worth taking, given the fact that we've got these safe and effective vaccines. Well, your point's well taken, and I congratulate uh, everybody, of course, at the, at the University Health Network for uh, policy and for those who are adhering to the policy. Uh, we also know, of course, Ontario's Children's Hospitals implementing similar policies. As you mentioned, uh, ballparks are doing it now. If you want to go to a Raptors game next year or you want to go to a Jays game, whatever, uh, proof of vaccination is going to be required for situations like this. And uh, it, it, there's a trend developing, and I'm glad to see that because the only way we're going to beat this thing, I guess, is is through this herd immunity that we talked about. And, and that's, I guess, the takeaway here, Doctor. We're not there yet. No, we're not there yet. And uh, obviously, we don't want to you know, be in a situation where we need to take more drastic actions and, and, and lock things down and shut things down again. And, you know, the path to doing that is to make sure that those you know, those gatherings are as safe as they can be. And they're, they're, they're safe, you know, they're much, much safer when everyone's vaccinated. So, I, I think we'll see more and more of this, um, and, uh, you know, it'll end up uh, helping us um, reduce case numbers and, uh, and get through the, you know, what, what's going to be a significant fourth wave. Well, we talked with uh, an infectious disease specialist from the University of Texas yesterday, a good friend, Dr. Brody, who's been on the show many times. And he said, actually, he says, that's the short-term benefit. The long-term benefit is, he says, uh, the longer that this thing hangs around and starts spreading, the more chance of it morphing once again into something that we're going to have to deal with. So, you know, there's a long-term benefit to getting vaccinated, too, to take this thing out of the game. Absolutely. I mean, the fewer copies of virus out there, the fewer opportunities it has to mutate and and become a new variant. And you know, we've seen how things have changed with the Alpha variant and now the Delta variant, and it's unlikely that we're done with, with uh, you know, versions of this virus. So, you know, the, the more we can reduce case numbers and reduce uh, the opportunity for these kinds of escape mutations, uh, the better off we are long term. Doctor, once again, congratulations on, on the policy and uh, good luck with the uh, the initiative here. I'm hoping that everybody buys into this and uh, we can talk about uh, this in our rearview mirror in the not-too-distant future, I wish. But uh, take care and thanks again for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Dr. Brad Waters, uh, of course, from the University Health Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
situation in Afghanistan is a, a rather dire circumstance. We've seen some of the pictures, of course, of the people crowding into airports, tr clinging to airplanes, uh, trying to get out of the country after the Taliban has taken over, uh, well, Kabul, but uh, an awful lot of the provincial capitals as well. Uh, and it's... Uh, been a subject of conversation during the campaign trail here back in Canada too. Prime Minister Trudeau uh, says the Canadian Armed Forces assets and personnel have arrived in Afghanistan. Uh, the Prime Minister faced criticism yesterday over delays in getting visas to Afghan citizens who fear for their lives. Here are the details and here's what the Prime Minister had to say. Canada has uh, personnel on the ground now and will have more personnel arriving uh, later uh, later today uh, to help with the processing, to help ensure that anyone uh, who uh, can make it to the airport and has, uh, uh, has, uh, is on the, the many lists that Canada has uh, is uh, given all the help that they can. Well, uh, we're not so sure about that because we're hearing some other stories about people on the ground there and, and some of their frustrations, quite frankly. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Randall Hansen. Uh, Professor Hansen is the Canadian Research Chair in Global Migration at the University of Toronto. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Uh, thanks for having me. This is a, a tragic problem, but it didn't just happen overnight. This has been building up for quite some time, and I think we had to have some anticipation that it was going to happen. I guess the first question is, did we have the infrastructure in place to be able to handle this crisis? Well, the answer is no, uh, but I don't think the fault lies fundamentally with the prime minister or the leaders of France, Germany, or Britain. It lies with the United States for this appalling route, this utter abandonment of the country uh, that they and we invaded 20 years ago and where we've spent so much money. So the chaos that's resulting is really the fault of the unilateral U.S. pullout orchestrated against the, the, the explicit wishes of London, uh, Berlin and Paris, as well as Ottawa, I'm sure. I mean, what what would the expectations to say we're going to be out of here by the end of August? I mean, they understood that, that I know at that time, and we heard some of those stories as well, that, well, said, well, the Taliban hasn't even captured any of the provincial capitals. I mean, it's going to be a long time before that happens, uh, which tells me that they didn't have very good intelligence. Uh, precisely. I mean, the, that's the only charitable interpretation is that the uh, American intelligence was telling uh, Biden something about um, Afghan military capacities that simply wasn't uh, true. But on the other hand, there was also a very clear counter-narrative, and many people pointed out, uh, absolutely uh, rightly, that uh, Trump's deal with the Taliban was nothing but a capitulation, that when you give them uh, a specific date, which Biden did move back a bit, and uh, attach no conditions to uh, withdrawal, and you remove American air support, which was absolutely fundamental, Afghan military strategy, such as it was, when all of that happened, there was uh, inevitab an inevitability about this, even if it surprised us all with its speed. Sadly, we're looking at this in hindsight, I suppose, and maybe a few people actually read through that, that here, the, the document that the, the president, then President Trump signed. But if you look at it now, Professor, it looks very much like a roadmap for the, for the Taliban to move right into Kabul. Oh, yes. And absolutely. take all the, def not, take all I, the defenses know, away so we can I'm, march right in. Yes, I, uh, sorry, sorry for cutting you off. That's okay. Uh, yes, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't wish to claim to have gotten everything right, but it was fairly clear to me, and I'm not the closest Afghanistan watcher, that when uh, this pullout was announced, that this would be uh, a catastrophe. I mean, the Soviets uh, could only hold the Taliban back uh, for three years of the Soviet regime uh, back in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, uh, and that was with a much more capable uh, force and stronger support from Moscow. I want to get your read on something else, too, if I could, Professor. Uh, the Taliban held a press conference earlier this week. I'm sure you saw that. And they, mm -hmm. they talked about, you know, we're, we're not the old Taliban. You know, we're, we're, we've changed our attitude. You know, we, we believe in, in some women's rights. And, you know, we want women to go to school. We want young girls to be educated. We want women to go back to work and, 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 and have positions, uh, the, uh, respective positions in government and in business. Uh, that was then. That's only four days ago. Now we're hearing stories about Taliban going door to door, looking for those people that assisted. Uh, the troops, uh, the American and British and Canadian troops, uh, they said they weren't going to do that either, that there was going to be some forgiveness. Is, is, is this the same old Taliban that we're dealing with? Well, we won't know the answer to that for sure um, without waiting a little bit, but it certainly doesn't look very good. I mean, the first point is that any moderation on the part of the Taliban, any quote-unquote moderate Taliban regime, that's a very, very relative idea relative to 
the absolute bestial cruelty of the 1990s regime. I mean, in any scenario, LGBTQ plus people are going to be murdered for what they are. And as you rightly pointed out, what we've seen so far, and it's still early days, and they know the world is still watching, uh, and there are still some U.S. troops there, uh, what we're getting now is exactly the opposite. Uh, so I think what we're going to see is the wholesale uh, murder of anyone who worked with uh, the Americans, with the NATO allies, uh, and and very, very likely uh, the utter repression of, of women once again. I very much hope I'm wrong, but I see few grounds for optimism. Well, with that in mind, and I don't disagree with you, and a number of experts, I think, concur with what you've just said, uh, the Prime Minister's comment yesterday that uh, as much as he wants to, it's going to be, I think the quote he used was nearly impossible uh, to evacuate the, the people that he wants to get out of that. Uh, there's a time frame here. We're told now that the, the Taliban are, are impeding uh, this process, such as it is by the Americans and, and the other forces right now. Uh, so not everybody who needs to get out of there is going to get out of there. That seems to be the takeaway here. Absolutely. And it comes back to the, the the first point about the route. I mean, there is no reason why uh, a military as powerful as the United States could have uh, held the country long enough to get uh, our, let's call them allies, the people who worked with us, the people who served with us uh, out of the country in time. And for reasons that mystify me, Biden uh, insisted uh, on not doing that and on this pullout, which looked very much like Saigon in the 1970s, the exact mm-hmm. opposite of what he promised. And, and again, had they stayed, I, I know we're getting into the what-if scenarios here, but had the troops stayed and there was no announced date and they'd started this evacuation then with the U.S. troops and the other troops that were still left there, I know there was not nearly as many as there were five, six years ago, but would that have made this process much easier? In other words, uh, when the United States announces... You know, we're leaving now that this process is done, now that we got out who we need to get out. Uh, it seemed as if they got that in reverse, and, and a lot of people are going to suffer uh, as a result of this. Oh, yes. I don't think that's, that's a particularly controversial point. I mean, you know, there's, a, there's kind of two positions in, in this debate. One is that they should have stayed that with a relatively modest troop presence in the thousands. They were maintaining uh, uh, the peace. They were keeping the pa- Taliban from taking power. And then one should have stayed. And, of course, some people reasonably say, how long? It's been 20 years, another 20. That's position one. Position two, uh, if a pullout had to happen, it could have been organized differently, more carefully, and in a manner that got people out. And on the second point, I don't see how there can be any, absolutely any debate. In that sense, this isn't like Vietnam. It, the country wasn't collapsing with the tele, uh, in the face of the Taliban onslaught, though it did control portions of it. Uh, until the Americans said, we're out of here. Is, I've got to ask you a short-term question here about the future. Uh, the, the Americans are gone. Uh, the president the other day said, you know, that's it. He stands by his decision. Uh, this country, as one observer said, is going to go to hell on a handcart very quickly. Uh, do we just simply say, well, we tried. That's the, all we're going to do? Well, we can't do anything without the Americans. The Americans are, are fundamental to any international coalition of any sort, and absolutely to any international military coalition. This is a disaster. This has also strengthened America's and, frankly, our enemies uh, in the world. Um, all we can do now is open uh, our refugee uh, systems uh, and this won't save many people because by the time we have the processes we need to get them out, they're already going to be dead. But if we expand, and the prime minister has has thankfully promised that, uh, the resettlement of refugees, we can at least save some people. Um, and point one, point two, most uh, refugees are going to cross the borders, end up in Pakistan, Iran, uh, and Turkey, and we need to support uh, those countries. I've got to ask you, what this does to the psyche of the people that were there. I understand that the majority of the population in Afghanistan now, I believe, is under 40 years of age. Uh, this is all they've seen. I mean, this 20-year uh, conflict, but even civil wars before that that have gone on. This is this is their way of life. I mean, that, that's got to have an impact on the population. Oh, I mean, this, 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 this is a, a country which has suffered immeasurably since the Soviet invasion of 1979. A country where superpowers have, have rolled in, um, engendered massive wars, massive human sufferings, and then uh, just pulled out. I mean, the Taliban, it's easy to forget, 
were children in Pakistani refugee camps fleeing bombs dropped by Soviet uh, helicopters in in the 1980s. So I, I couldn't even pretend to understand the trauma that these people have experienced. But there's, there's that's about the Afghan people. There's a point about our interest here. We went in because those refugee camps were a breeding ground for terrorism, because Taliban, uh, the Taliban welcomed in al-Qaeda, all of that, because we are allowing this country again to descend into civil war, is going to occur once more. So even if you're a hardcore realist and say, I don't give a damn about the Afghan people, not a Canadian interest, not a German interest, not an American interest, we have an interest in avoiding terrorism, and this decision only encourages it. There are cells cells where they're all over the world. We know that to be true. Does does what's happened in the last 10 days, especially in Afghanistan, embolden them? Oh, uh, um, morally, absolutely. I mean, this will be coded in jihadist jihadist circles as uh, the Taliban, with God on their side, has defeated the world's greatest superpower. I think beyond that, there'll be all sorts of technical and operational geographical advantages to the jihadists, but just at the kind of moral level, if you will, this has been a, a, a massive victory and a massive and, and, quite frankly, unnecessary defeat for the United States. Professor, so good to get your insight into this. Thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Professor Randall Hansen, uh, Canada Research Chair in Global Migration at the University of Toronto. Uh, this is having an impact on the United States. We've seen that, of course, on television with the president and, and uh, the pushback that he's getting, not just from politicos, but also from a, a number of different people around uh, the country. Joining us to talk about that, uh, Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, joins us uh, from the uh, nation's capital south of the border. Reggie, great to have you back. Thanks for doing it. Hope you're doing well these days. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Polling in the states, uh, even during the presidential election back in November and before that, Reggie, indicated a, a pretty strong support for getting the troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, Donald Trump tried to do it, ended up settling, of course, with the deal that he signed with the Taliban. Uh, Obama talked about it. It wasn't the right time. Biden has been pretty strident that this is going on. Uh, nonetheless, there's an awful lot of pushback on this. Have the Americans changed their mind about this? I don't know if the Americans have quite changed their mind on the base move of withdrawing troops from uh, Afghanistan. Uh, there were polls that were put out up to uh, not more than just over a month ago that still showed overall 70% of Americans supported the decision for the U.S. to withdraw from Afghanistan. Uh, those numbers you know, were higher than in May when Quinnip- uh, Quinnipiac found 62% uh, were in favor of this. I think what's happening now is a game of optics. The United States uh, people are now seeing that the plan that was you know, broadly supported has been executed so poorly that there are now questions as to whether or not uh, enough work was done in uh, to get this uh, to where it needs to go. So Americans wanted to see the, the American troops brought out, but I'm not sure that polling is going to be uh, as similar as it was to if people were asked if the plan went off accordingly. Reggie, it, what, what's the word on, on, in the beltway there, up on the state capitol on the hill, uh, about the way this is being done? Not that it, not that it's being done, but in the way in which it's done. I'm, I, I'm getting uh, some some memories of, of you know the Bush administration in, in the with the war in Iraq. You know, they said, "Well, we got bad intelligence on this." That that seemed to be their excuse for when things went badly on this one. Uh, is 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 there some finger pointing going on right now between the Pentagon and the White House about who said what to to say this is a good time to do this? Yeah, I mean, look, the finger pointing definitely between the Pentagon, the White House, the State Department's included in that. But on Capitol Hill, you're also getting Republicans and Democrats pointing fingers at each other and at the president and at the intelligence agency solely because this has been such a catastrophic failure uh, when it comes to how the United States was moving forward. Look, there are reports that show that intelligence uh, had information that Afghanistan would collapse at a rapid pace. That was their worst case scenario. Just a month ago, on July 8th, President Biden was asked that question, if intelligence showed that. He said, no, intelligence doesn't show anything about that. That is now coming back to, well, did intelligence fail or did intelligence potentially not tell the president? This is now leading to Democrats saying, well, I think we need an investigation. This is now leading Republicans to say President Biden may not have uh, the mental capacity to be in the position that he's in if he wasn't willing to kind of look at the broader picture here outside of just pulling out of America, uh, out of Afghanistan. So there is a lot of uh, finger pointing right now. That's not going to help 
in the situation uh, that the U.S. is in. It's also worth pointing out, Bill, that there are finger pointing within the Republicans towards Joe Biden for negotiating with the Taliban when it was the Republicans themselves under Donald Trump who made this firm and final negotiation with the Taliban. So it's confusing, and that's leading to the chaos. Yeah, the Republicans are pretty quiet initially, weren't they? But as they see this unfold and seeing the uh, the catastrophic results there, they, uh, obviously they've made this a political po- hot potato once again, and are starting to blame Biden for this. Uh, he, it sounds as if he's going to wear this for quite some time, and this is this is a problem that's going to stick around. It's it's it all of a sudden seems to have uh, pushed things like COVID and everything else into the background in Washington, Reggie. Well, I mean, it has and it hasn't. Look, the president is still defiant uh, and pushing back on any criticism for how this is being carried out, saying, look, this was going to be uh, a struggle and was going to be difficult and chaotic no matter what the situation was. And he's still trying to push across this message that, well, things are bad, uh, that they could have been worse and that this is how it's supposed to be. But at the same time, the president is also facing some fierce criticism because Well, COVID is still an issue, obviously, in the United States and well infrastructure and well everything he's trying to do for his agenda is important. He's still keeping those things top lined in his daily agenda. It was just a couple of days ago in the middle of this collapse and crisis happening at at the Kabul airport. Joe Biden held a closed session one on one with U.S. governors about his infrastructure plan. And he's been holding meetings uh, about the COVID-19 outbreak in the United States, taking his attention away from this situation in Afghanistan, and he is facing mounting criticism for not being laser focused on the situation in the Middle East, trying to just, you know, overall encompass everything in his agenda. And that's also now facing pushback from the broader American public who don't think that the president can handle this one massive task. And on that point, uh, the, the news we got this morning, of course, from Washington is that uh, the, the border, the Canada-U.S. border is going to remain closed uh, to, to ordinary traffic for at least another 30 days. I would imagine that's as a result of, of the Biden administration's focus on the, the rising numbers of new cases of COVID. Yeah, absolutely it is. Look, I had a conversation with somebody in the White House yesterday and kind of had some advanced knowledge that this border uh, restriction was going to stay in place. It's not surprising that Department of Homeland Security opted to keep these restrictions for another month, despite uh, some mounting criticism from Democratic lawmakers and from Republican lawmakers, notably from those border states. Uh, Representative Brian Higgins from Western New York has been uh, extremely vocal against the Biden administration's decision to not allow for uh, for uh, uh, travel into the United States outside of something that is considered to be uh, uh, essential. Uh, he says that, you know, this is kind of harmful to the humans, it's harmful to the economy. But the Department of Homeland Security says, look, it's harmful to the entire country, considering the fact that the Delta variant is now responsible for nearly 100 percent of all cases. They're seeing surges uh, that are mimicking the numbers that we saw uh, at the earlier parts of this year. And that includes with death tolls and hospitalization. So there is a prompt fear in the Biden administration to keep people out until they can get the situation under control. But again, it is just another thing that is added to the plate of a president whose plates are already very full. Very fluid situation. Uh, We'll be looking forward for your updates and your reporting on this on Global National. Uh, Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Stay well. Thank you. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News down in Washington. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.